0: This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E.
1: Teal Talk Radio Season 6, Episode 17. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 17 of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn funy Hatton,
2: And I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. Today, we're speaking with Armand Doucette about his new book, Teaching Life. Teaching Life brings the voices of teachers into the global conversation about educational reform to offer a how-to for implementing into classrooms design thinking, technology integration, and holistic education based on competencies, social-emotional learning, and the literacies. Armand is one of the world's foremost pracademics and teachers in education. He's a sought after leader, inspirational speaker, coach, columnist, and co author of the best selling book, Teaching in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Armand currently teaches modern history and world issues in French immersion at Riverview High School in the Anglophone East School District in New Brunswick, Canada. He's received the Governor General Award for Teaching Excellence in History, Canadian Prime Minister's Award for Teaching Excellence, is a Meritorious Service Medal recipient, Governor General of Canada, and an Apple Distinguished Educator, Teach SDGs ambassador, and has recently been nominated in the Top 50 for the Global Teacher Prize. You may recall we interviewed Armand in season four.
1: So welcome back to the podcast, Armand. Thank
3: you. Thank you for having me.
1: Our pleasure. So we got to start the morning with the Canadian National Anthem, too, as we were getting ready to, to uh, talk here this morning. So let's get our conversation started with a personal story about how you got so passionate about the importance of teacher voice in the transformation of schools. How did you find your calling as a pracademic? Uh,
3: pracademic is an interesting term. Uh, I think it was coined by Andy Hargraves, meaning practitioner academic. Uh, I don't know if I consider myself much of an academic apart from active uh, or action-based research. Uh, but the, the more that I get interested in uh, what's happening in the classroom? The more I'm reading, the more I'm reaching out. The more I, my network of experts that I can reach to is becoming bigger and bigger, or larger and larger. Uh, I think uh, the answer to that question is I've always wanted to affect change in my community. Uh, I've always wanted to be part of the solutions, not the, not necessarily the questions uh, or the complaints, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with the ability. Uh, to now travel internationally and be part of global networks such as the SDGs, uh, Apple Distinguished Educator, the Global Teacher Prize, uh, the UNESCO. It it really has given me the opportunity to have a voice on a global platform uh, for teachers. And oftentimes we don't have, uh, we're not in the room where we don't have that voice uh, and we're not in the room where the decisions are made big Hamilton fan and oftentimes uh, or Andrew Burr talks about wanting to be in the room where it happens and uh, teachers are oftentimes not invited to that discussion when it comes to education Mm so uh, I think it's extremely important to have that voice internationally and locally
1: well and this is a great way to get your voice out there
3: (laughs) thank you
2: well and it's a great you're a great role model Mm -hmm. too for teachers and and anyone in education, this idea that you're constantly inquiring on your practice, wanting to be part of that conversation, um, and, and sort of embracing that that ownership of that, too. I think that's, you know, obviously a lot of the people think that's a really good, you're a really good role model for that.
3: Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we're not, uh, I always think the room's a lot smarter than I am, uh, and it'd be vastly uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? It, it'd be wrong of me to not go in humbled and, and understand that I can constantly improve. So I think that's where it comes from.
2: And you're a catalyst in that environment too. You you Yeah.
3: Uh, well, I'm in service of everyone, right? As a teacher, you're in service of your students. And I, I think we forget that throughout the education system sometimes. Like school leadership is in service of teachers that are in service of... Of students our job is to try to connect with them and help them develop their learning and, and develop lifelong learning skills right so uh, I, I see that as my prime uh, my prime responsibility is, is, is to be connecting them to their world and connecting them to their learning
0: mm-hmm.
2: and you've translated that into uh... A new book. So let's dive into to teaching life here a little bit. And one of your chapters uh, that I found really interesting was this idea of design thinking and its potential to drive change in the system. And so, you know, why do our classrooms need to change? Let's start with that. And then how might this idea of design thinking support that kind of change?
3: Uh, well, first and foremost, I'm not necessarily part of or believe in the neoliber- neoliberalism sort of narrative of why we need to change. Uh, I think that's driven from EdTech uh, in many ways uh, and privatization in education. And obviously in the U.S. you've seen a lot of that with uh, what's happening. Uh, I believe education is a public good uh, and that public education is extremely important uh, for strong, strong democracies and uh, particularly in this day and age to be able to. Uh, you know, go through a daily life and to be able to critically think and problem solve and and realize what's true and what's not. So uh, the reason why I think it needs to pivot a bit more is mostly because of uh, what's happened in our communities. So if you look over the last 30 or 40 years, our communities have vastly changed. And and I think Cormac Russell says it best uh, at DePaul University, where he talks about the community as part of the education system, but that right now, most of what was happening with the community now falls on the school's doorsteps and design thinking to me is a opportunity for us to sort of approach it from a, okay, how do we reach our students? What do they need? And start with that question. and funny enough, it was driven from conversations with the Teachers Guild, uh, which is the nonprofit wing of IDEO, uh, which is probably the biggest design thinking tank in in the world. Mm-hmm. If, if they're not, they're awfully close to it. Uh, with David Kelly, who uh, was at Stanford D School, uh, and then created that with Tim Brown and a few other ones, or his brother. Um, so the design thinking aspect to me is about seeing where you are and realizing what question you need to ask to then create and and to then design for your classroom. Uh, And every year, every semester, every week, uh, every day sort of starts with that question and, and goes from there.
1: So one of the questions you've been asking or thinking about is the changing role of the teacher. And um, this is something that Randy and I have been talking a lot about in our other podcast for Shift Your Paradigm as we release agency to learners, sort of why does a teacher's role need to look different? And you've said in your book, teachers must change how we teach and interact with students, shifting our traditional role as the knowledge keeper, transmitter, and instead adopt the mantle of guide, chief designer, cultural developer, and leader of a classroom with this nuanced pedagogical practice. So what advice do you offer school leaders um, as they try to help under teachers understand this shift and the need for the shift?
3: I think it starts with sort of Dennis Shirley's views on uh, pro- what a professional teacher is today. Um, and then as a school leader, I hope you're in a system that has a professional workforce. And by professional workforce, I don't mean they get hired and they get paid to show up in the platform. I mean that they have the foundational uh, skills, knowledge, competencies, uh, the foundational background to be able to take professional judgment calls. Uh, Because in this day and age, with the way the classrooms are sort of set up, you need professionals that can think on their feet, that can pivot when they need to. I I oftentimes use the example of House, uh, the TV show, where it's a doctor who uh, have gone through the traditional, okay, check the list. Uh, What could it possibly be? And then they have to think outside the box to try to realize, you know, what's happening with the patient. And I think that's the same for teachers. You know, we all have, you know, sort of a checklist that we can go through at the start, but then after that, you need to be able to be the professional that thinks on the speed, and then pivots when he needs to. Uh, And I think most professions are like that as well. You know, air pilots have like a 220 uh, checklist before takeoff. Uh, Atul Gawande talks about it in the checklist manifesto. Uh, and he actually told Gawande, who was a surgeon talks about that as well, right? Uh, talks about creating a checklist before they go into surgery and then for them to be able to be professionals and save lives. So to me, it's all about being a professional. Now, my worry nowadays is that we're, we have system where privatization plays a big part and there's a narrative coming into play that also makes the occupation interesting uh, for administration leadership. I'll talk more like other departmental level, because they can hire them for cheaper. Uh, they can hire them out with less uh, training. Uh, they don't have to go through the gauntlet of training that uh, other areas need to. Uh, so if you look at Finland, you need a master's degree to be able to teach Well, there's some areas in the U.S. where you only need six weeks of training after your bachelor's degree and then Mm. you can get hired in. There's some other areas (laughs) where you don't even need that Uh because of what's going on. Now, Mm -hmm. that's directly linked to other issues uh, that people don't want to take care of. So I I think that's a band-aid solution and it's it's definitely the wrong path to take. So when, when I'm talking about that nuanced approach that you just mentioned, it's really about... Being able to pick in your toolbox what the right pedagogical practice is for that time because you are a professional, Uh, but you need to invest in your teachers to be able to do that.
1: So taking some time to really have some conversations and think about what teachers need and um, sort of the big picture that we don't always have teachers at the table to have those conversations.
3: Yeah, and I I mean, in in the US, you also have a professional development model that's quite different than a lot of places in the world where, you know, teachers are, are, depending on which state, need to fend for themselves and pay for their own professional development uh, and oftentimes can't afford it uh, and it's not personalized. So you're you're looking at more systemic, personalized uh, coaching and and professional development throughout their career Mm -hmm. uh, and at different stages. Uh, for them to be able to really uh, do a great job. I mean, sometimes it's content, right? We all know that sometimes we hire a teacher because he's got the background, but you need to fill in a certain space that they might not have the content knowledge. So maybe it's content that they need a bit more work on, but other times it might be, uh, you know, how to create culture or how to reach them in a social emotional way and so on and so forth. So, especially as we're pivoting more towards some of those things that were once done in the community, now on our doorsteps and expected to be done by education, uh, which I don't necessarily agree with, but is now expected by education, then we need to also realize that that also needs to come with professional development.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, you know, you're looking at social emotional learning. Well, what do you do with mental health uh, when somebody has anxiety issues? If you haven't dealt with that before, or. Uh, reaching them at their zone of proximal development to push them in terms of resiliency. How far can you go? You know, if it's too far, then you break them. If it's just far enough. <laughs> right. And you know what makes we me, we don't want to
1: break them? anyone.
3: <laughs> no. And, and you know what it makes me think of though, is Gene Hackman's Hoosiers. Do you remember <laughs> oh, that? <movie>? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. at the start he talks about, and they don't even touch a basketball. It's just about defensive movement. Right but he knows exactly how far to push him before he needs to pivot into, okay, let's, let's do something else. Right. And it's the same for teaching, right. You need to, and that's the art part of the job. Uh, and it's not something you really, you really can teach, but you can get mentored in. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I think that's part of, we need to start acknowledging how complicated our job is.
1: Mm -hmm. Very complex work.
3: Oh yeah.
2: Do you think though, at least here in the States with, you know, the last 15 years or so of uh, accountability, do you think that has sort of deprofessionalized and and taken agency away from teachers and sort of created this culture of just the checklist? Like, all you have to do is check things off the list to be the teacher to, you know, bring up those test scores kinds of things. Has that contributed towards the deprofessionalization or are there other things?
3: Uh, I think that's definitely contributed to it. I think it's also demoralized the workforce, mm-hmm. uh, and it's also dumbed it down in some ways. Uh, I, I think that's the best way of saying it, uh, because now you know PLCs, professional learning, uh, or professional uh, learning groups, or professional learning collaboration. Uh, you're now looking at. A situation where, okay, we're all going to follow this minute by minute and make sure. And that gives the administrator the opportunity so that when the parent comes in, if they haven't done this in the SAT scores, they can showcase, no, we did it at this minute. It's your child's fault. I I think it's a trust issue and it becomes an accountability piece that really comes from uh, business, Mm -hmm. uh, manufacturing, uh, you know, efficiency. Mm -hmm. But the reality is they're humans. Right. And and when we talk about the science part, yeah, there's a certain part of that that you can do a checklist. You know, have you gone through uh, the different universal design for learning exercises that might be able to reach them? But at the end of the day, that might still not reach them because maybe they're getting beat up at home. Uh, Maybe they're not eating. Maybe there's a drug issue. Uh, Maybe they're getting bullied. And you got to dig down deeper than that to actually reach the learning. I consider it the low-hanging fruit for the accountability. Uh, So in other words, if it's just test scores, memorization, uh, no real competencies involved in it, meaning critical thinking or problem solving, then yeah, we can do it that way. And it can also be automated, uh, which is I think why some of that narrative is being discussed is because you can automate it, make it a heck of a lot cheaper. That's sexy for a politician to talk about, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to be the person that brings it down from a billion dollars to a hundred million because we're going to automate. Well, the truth is then you're going to have a very weak community, a very weak society uh, because everything else is not taken care of. right? So I do think that you're completely spot on that it's demoralized uh, and it's also uh, gotten to the point now where I think the system needs to be ripped up, uh, particularly the standardized testing. And the impact that it has on your classroom, um, and how it's infected the culture, uh, the teaching, the learning, the uh, the perception from parents on what needs to happen. I mean, it, it's it's becoming very toxic.
2: So I think in all this toxicity. (laughs) One of the things that um, we might be losing is this uh, idea of community, and you've mentioned that actually a number of times, that word community. So share with us some examples of teachers building community and how these examples can be models for this kind of change that we're talking about here.
3: Uh, Well, I can go from international all the way down. So I'll start with international. Kuhn Timmers, who is my co-author in teaching uh, Fourth Industrial Revolution, Uh, He's done a really good job of creating a platform for community internationally through different projects uh, that you can do in the classrooms. Uh, You combine that with the SDG movement uh, and most of his projects connect to one of those. The last one was climate change where, you know, teachers and students around the world were looking at climate change, but to be action oriented So they were talking about how many trees they planted and I think they planted overall over a million trees and over a hundred different countries, thousands of classrooms participated. Um, he's opened dialogue between Palestinians and Israeli kids, uh, between Pakistani and Indian kids where they're talking about you know, different things and, and finding that common humanity in things uh, that oftentimes adults can't. So from that level, it's great to be able to, if you're looking at global citizenship, to open up those communication and collaboration. So. That's definitely an international platform and a model for that. Um, you have that also through the MIEE, so the Microsoft Fellows and the Apple Distinguished Educators, and some of the other networks like UNESCO uh, or the Teach SDG movements, where you have multiple platforms that open up the world to your classroom. And there was an article in Maclean's magazine, which is a popular magazine in Canada, that uh, talked about the U.S. about 10 years ago that about 83 percent of the population didn't get out from a 10 block radius.
2: Mm. Mm. Uh,
3: you know, that's that's a big percentage point of people that have not necessarily been able to communicate with others uh, that don't look the same, don't talk the same, don't, uh, you know, don't have the same culture. And and when something happens, that can be fearful, right? Uh, And we have that in Canada as well and in most major cities across the world, cities are very multicultural, but you go into the rural areas and they're not. And and so that fear becomes an issue. Uh, So having these platforms definitely gives us the opportunity to find common humanity. Uh, If you're looking at local communities, uh, I've got numerous examples of teachers, networking, going outside of their four walls, to be able to meet up with community members, NGOs, experts, engineers, and bringing them back into the classroom to help students continue to pursue their passions, but also their projects, right? Uh, I'm not an expert in medicine. I'm not an expert in uh, museums. I'm not an expert in uh, engineering, but I have students that are pursuing projects in history that need that expertise. So I've got one that's looking at D-Day and the innovation through D-Day. Well, there's a bunch of innovation in there. And if you're looking from 1939 to D-Day, particularly when it comes to tanks, planes, so on and so forth, well, you need an engineer to actually take a look at that and see what the innovation is. And then because they're looking to pivot it, right? So they're looking at, okay, well, what would happen if D-Day was today? What would I need to do Uh, from an engineer's perspective, let's say. Or, um, you know, someone that's looking at politics. Well, why can't we speak with an expert in politics from the university, right? A political science major or the professor and bring him in. So having access to the community is definitely a need as we pivot this way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So another one of your chapters focuses on assessment and um you shared a little bit that your, your learners are working on some pretty different projects. How do you change the assessment narratives in our schools? Meaning, like, what are your thoughts on our, our current focus? You mentioned a, a few different things throughout the podcast.
3: Well, I definitely don't have the solution. <laughs> uh, particularly for the, for the U.S. model and, and depending on which state you're in. Uh, the reason for that is I think it's systematic. I think it really needs to go from a system and you need to look at does the mission and vision align with what's actually happening in the classroom? Uh, I think Ed Catmull says it best when he says, you know, if there's more truth in the hallways than there is in the boardroom, your, your company's got issues. Mm-hmm. And I think he's a pretty brilliant man uh, as the president of Pixar and then I think he's the CEO now of Disney. Uh, so, and that's the truth to me as well is that, you know, assessment is, is it for learning um, or is it to help the child understand where he is or she is to be able to take that next step? To me, assessment is to find where the zone of proximal development is uh, and then to be able to continue to push to, for them to be able to continue to learn. Um, it's about being able to self-assess as much as having somebody from the outside. If you look at the great athletes, the great musicians, the great artists, they're very good at self-assessing their skills, uh, at self-assessing uh, what's happening around them, at uh, how to tweak it to become better. And that's what we want from our students, right, is for them to learn how to learn and, and to learn when they're wrong and when they when they need to search, seek out help. Uh, when they need to have conversations, when they need to get critical feedback. Um, You know, I'm a horrible writer. uh, And every chapter in my book takes about 25 to 30 drafts, And uh, I know I have a blind spot for that. So I constantly will go get 10, 12, 13 different people looking at chapters. And then it's my job to sort of take all this all this feedback and realize, okay, well, what do I need to do? How do I do it? Which one is key? And I think that's what you want from your students as well as down the line for them to be able to do that as they progress through their learning. Um, and while doing that, if you're looking at social, emotional competencies, skills, and curriculum content or literacies, there's four there that sort of all encompasses a holistic education in my mind. And each of your students will have a varying degrees uh, on those four pillars. So it, it's my job to sort of take a look at that. And when I say we pivot from content expert, well, that's true, but you still need that content expertise because you know where they're going in some ways and you know how you need to connect it to your curriculum. Uh, and you're facilitating that pathway. If you both had no clue, it would take, A lot longer to progress.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, You know, if there was a pair of skates, uh, and I wore the pair of skates, I would learn how to skate. But if I never met anybody else, I wouldn't know if I'm doing it right or wrong. Right? I'm just doing. Uh, But then if I met, you know, a great hockey player like Sidney Crosby in Pittsburgh, and I realized, oh, I'm not doing this right, and give me a couple of tips, and then I start realizing, okay, all right, I got to bend my knees. I got to Know, be on my edges. There's a bunch of different things that I need to try, but I still don't know what that looks like or feels like necessarily, apart from how only I've seen one person. So as my progression, as I see more people and as I get more coaching, then it's going to get drastically better if I can do it biomechanically, right? That's a whole other issue. So it's the same for students, I think, is is that we're trying to make something that's extremely complex into something that's very simple. And if you're looking at assessment, if you're just doing curriculum, content, or memorization, then you're not really uh, validating what true learning is, uh, and, and that to me is wrong. So what we do is triangulation of data uh, to answer your question. I know that's a long winded answer. But, uh, I look at observation, conversation, uh, and product, uh, and depending on what my needs are for my learning outcomes that I need to address as a professional. And what the needs of the child are then i will pivot how they're going to showcase it or i'll ask them how they want to showcase it Uh, i'll give you an example i have a child today that created a twitter account uh for a historical perspective of billy joel's concerts in moscow uh during the fall of communism Uh so she needed to research the concert needed to research billy joel needed to research communism needed to research you know what would what would have been his thought process, so on and so forth. And she created five tweets based off that time period
2: mm. for
3: his perspective. So I could have asked for an essay. I could have asked for, you know, write down on a test, what is historical perspective, or I could ask her to actually do it. Uh, and what is she interested in? And she came up with that, which I thought was really cool. Huh.
2: So the, the uh, word that uh, is sort of, threading through the, as you're explaining this, in, in my mind, is agency. So an assessment, too, is typically it's done to the student by the teacher. It's sort of a one-way kind of thing. And I think you're you're releasing more agency in learners to, to not only formatively assess along the way and be, being able to develop that skill because as adults, once we release them uh, after their formal education, that's a really important skill for them to have and the assessment process can help build that.
3: Yeah, agency's
2: huge, right? If they don't
3: see where they're going and why and they don't take ownership of it, then it's not going to work. And uh, I oftentimes, even if we do a unit on World War II, we'll sit down and say, okay, what was important in this? And then they'll come up with a a lot of different things and usually they're spot on, right? So when I do give a task, it's usually co-created. Uh, and, and when, when it comes to agency, it's about making sure that it, it's meaningful for them is what it, it goes down to, but also understanding that there's things that they just don't know and things that they don't understand they need to go through. And that sometimes, you know, that's going to happen. But if we build that trust, then, then they're going to do it as uh, they're going to do it because they believe that, you know, you're pointing them in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're you're completely spot on. Agency is a huge part of it.
2: So one <laughs> one curiosity here, you the way that you're talking, you're definitely sort of outside. Your thinking's and your actions are definitely outside the sort of the traditional paradigm of school. Have you always been there, or was there some sort of experience growth thing that that sort of pushed you into this way of thinking, or is it just sort of evolved over time?
3: Uh, I've always been an outside the box kind of guy. <laughs> Uh, I started coaching at the age of thirteen uh, so uh, I've always sort of towed the line between a public figure and a my personal life I guess uh, and I've always had high morals high ethics so 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 for me it's it's always been sort of that case of uh, trying to develop as much as I can as a community leader uh, and to try to help out others uh, because it really stems from a major social justice background. Both my grandfathers were uh, very influential in our communities up north and and down south in our province. Uh, One was a surgeon pre-Medicare in Canada and would offer free Medicare or free health, um, free doctor's visits and free health care. Uh, before it actually came through in Canada. Uh, and my other one was very much involved in uh, CRTC, the community and so on. So I come from it honestly. Um, but because I've coached from a young age, classroom management's never really been an issue for me uh, because I've learned how to connect with kids to get the best out of them. Particularly, that's what you do in sports, right? You're trying to develop and it's usually something that they enjoy doing. Uh, so that connection piece, I find that i I I've done it outside the box and I've come from it honestly from a different pathway which has helped my classroom practice I guess Um, and it's something that I call the art part of teaching I think you read that in the book where it's not the science it's not the background on pedagogical uh, expertise or the toolbox it's about connecting with people it's about being able to sit down and ask the questions on how do you feel and not and not Feel uh, or and for that student or for that parent not to feel that you're not authentic, right? Uh, oftentimes it just feels like the checkbox is getting checked, right? But you know, teachers spend. You can either do a two-minute parent conversation or you can have a real 20-25 twenty-five-minute parent conversation and and really get to the depth of the issue and trying to tackle it, uh, even though it's not your job, right? It might be the social worker's job or psychologist or guidance, but at the end of the day, you care, right? Um, and I think that's sort of my pathway has brought me to that. And I think that's the pivot you're talking about. It's, it's been outside the box professional development that I think has been key.
1: All right, well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Lots for us to think about. Um, before we invite you to share what you're working on right now or what's next for you, uh, we would love to hear your responses to some of our lightning response questions. Are you ready? <laughs>
2: Sure. (laughs)
1: Okay. Uh, We added these questions really to help our listeners find more resources that might be of interest to them. Okay. So, who's one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about teaching and driving change in the classroom?
3: Andy Hargraves. I would also say Pak Tiang's book was excellent.
1: What online resource or person or site do you learn from regularly?
3: I'm a bad uh, example of this because (laughs) I read a ton and it's all over the place. I really try to get multiple perspectives. Uh, At the moment, uh, I've been looking into coaching. So how do you coach teachers? Uh, Trista Holowack, uh, Barnard Berry out of South Carolina, uh, used to be with, well, still is with CTQ, which was an online platform. Uh... Those are the major ones that come up to mind. Uh, they are also a group, Jim Knight, John Campbell, mm-hmm. Rachel.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, they're like a power group in coaching at the moment that I've yeah. been taking a look at. Uh, mostly because we're looking at, you know, leadership pathway, school leadership and teacher leadership in my province. And it's something that's really
2: interesting. So the last question that we have for you, Armand, is what's new for you? What do you got cooking that you'd like to share with our audience?
3: Uh, well for the first time in a while my wife's not pregnant so uh,
1: (laughs) so nothing cooking there
3: it's not cooking (laughs) Uh, but uh, right now I have uh, I just spoke at World Teacher Day for UNESCO in Paris Uh, so I'm in the process of looking at uh, a couple of TV shows that we are in development uh, one for a streaming service another documentary uh, for our our national chain here in Canada. And I've got a third book in the works uh, as well as teaching full time in the classroom and just trying to get
2: better every day. Awesome. Every minute of your day is spoken for, huh? Uh, Fully is, uh, including
3: trying to get to the gym in the morning to try to keep my health up.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a good foundation. You got to keep that going. <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Armand. It was a pleasure to talk with you and learn more about your work and how your work connects to um, our work here.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
1: Our pleasure. So to learn more about Armand's work, you'll see in the show notes, um, you can follow him on Twitter, a link to his book and also a link to our season four, episode 36. Um, Check it out. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. This episode's question, how might you elevate the teacher voice in driving transformational change in your school or district? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tealtalkradio.org and look for season six, episode 17. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring an innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Armand.
2: Thank you. Bye Bye-bye. bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.